We've been, in the past few weeks, diving into the, the mission and culture of the church. And I've stated before that I believe the purpose of the local church is twofold. One, it's to be a preview, the coming attraction of the kingdom of heaven. So the purpose of the local church is twofold. First, we're supposed to be the preview. We're supposed to be the coming attraction. We're supposed to be that image that we see that says, yes, I need to watch that movie. Yes, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Yes, if that's what the kingdom is about, I need that. And then two, the purpose of the local church is to be the means of kingdom advancement. So one, we're supposed to be the preview, the coming attraction of the kingdom. But then two, we're supposed to be the very means, the very way that that kingdom moves and advances in this world. So our mission statement here is this. We exist to advance the kingdom of God by making disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. So we've been diving into what this means for us. What does it look like for us to, to, to do this and to live out this mission? And so here we have something called plumb lines. Plumb lines are these pithy sayings that we, we use and repeat and we say over and over again to make sure we're staying in line with the mission. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of good civic organizations out there. There's a lot of good groups out there that you can, any one of us can be a part of. There's a lot of good country clubs or civic clubs or friendship groups or neighborhood clubs. There's all these organizations that we can be a part of. But here at the church, we're part of a mission. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're set apart for a purpose. And that's to see his kingdom come on earth as it is heaven. So we want to stay true to that. We don't want to just be an organization. We don't want to just be a gathering. We want to stay true to the mission that God has placed upon us. So we create plumb lines. The very first plumb line, this, this statement that we say over and over again, we spoke about a couple weeks ago, is this. Every member a missionary. Every member a missionary. What that means is that if you're part of the team, if you're on the team, then there is no bench for you. You're in the game. You're playing. There's no just kind of like, oh, let me just find the bench and get, see what everybody else is doing. No, no, no. You're on the team, then you're playing in the game. In other words, God has uniquely, specifically called you to be a part of the mission that he has. What significance, what purpose he's placed upon you. Every single one of us, we're all called to be missionaries. Being a missionary isn't just for the super Christian. isn't for those holy people who go overseas. But missions is doing what God's called you to do where he's called you to do it. Missions is doing what God's called you to do, where he's called you to do it. Every one of us have a mission. Every one of us is called to do a work by God wherever he's called us to do it. For some of you, that looks like Gambia. For some of you, that looks like University of North Carolina. For some of you, that looks like your workplace. That looks like IBM. That looks like your hospital. That looks like your neighborhood. But wherever it may be, God has called you to a mission, and there is no bench. You need to be playing in the game. Do you hear me? You have purpose. You have calling upon you. You are necessary part of the team that God has put together to accomplish his mission. So two, our second plumb line. Our first plumb line is every member missionary. Our second plumb line is we live in an intentionally diverse community by the gospel and for the gospel. What that means is we live intentionally in a non-segregated but intentionally diverse community because we believe in doing so, 
we show people what the kingdom of God looks like. By living among people of different colors, of different ethnic backgrounds, of different ages, of different social economic backgrounds, we show that, hey, the things that divide the rest of this world, it's minor compared to what unites us in Christ Jesus. That our identifying factor isn't only our race or ethnicity or our wealth or our status level or our culture, but our identifying factor is that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus purchased us by his blood, set us apart, and created a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people after his own heart. So we do this, we live intentionally because we believe it shows what the kingdom looks like, but we also believe by doing this, that other people can say, oh, wait a minute, why would everybody else in America and the South is divided, why are you guys not divided? And we can say, oh, let me tell you about the gospel. Because the gospel says that um, we're all sinners and we all need Jesus. Third plumb line is, and this is what, we, what Pastor Danny preached on last week, is about prayer. It led us all in time of prayer. And what Pastor Josh did earlier today, we got a congregation in all time of prayer. We believe prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. I'll say that again. Prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. So that means it is so important to us. And we need to remind ourselves how important it is. So if we want to see God move, we want to see God change and reach the unreached people group, we want to see him move in our schools, we want to see him move in our hearts, in our families' lives, what we need to do then is we need to pray. Because if he chooses to move through prayer, this is what we stated, God chooses to move through prayer, this is what we believe, then we need to be praying. This is our reminder that we want to see God reach the nations, we want to see disciples being made, then we need to start with prayer. Today is our newest plumb line. Kind of excited about sharing it with all of you. See, today's topic of scripture, you guys, most of you probably got it by now when you heard the scripture that was being read. It's a topic that most pastors don't like to talk about. Most people less like to hear about. It's a topic that I find so funny because it's the idea of talking about money and stewardship. Right? And that's a topic that people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to hear anything about that. When in reality, that is so often talked about in the Bible. Right? When in reality, that is the very issue of money and stewardship and management that is so kind of relevant to our issues in life, isn't it? Yeah, we don't want to hear anything about it, do we? We don't want to talk about it. And can I just be, I'll just be completely honest with all of you. I'm a complete people pleaser. I like to please people. I like people thinking, oh, that Lawrence guy, I, I like him. And so the idea of talking about money is something I don't want to do. Because <laughs> I don't want people to be like, don't talk about money, Lawrence. I don't want to hear it. But it's so vital. It's like going to the doctor and saying, well, don't talk about like diet or exercise. I don't want to hear it. They're like, but you're at the doctor. You want to be healthy, right? That just seems foolish. There is so much a part of our spiritual lives that is so important and so much that is relevant to the issue of stewardship and money that we don't realize that is connected. And we try to separate elements of our lives into these separate little sections. And we don't realize there is no separation if the gospel doesn't hit you holistically, it doesn't hit you at all. Do you hear me? So our newest plumb line is this. And I want you to hear this. It's missional living, generous giving. Missional living, 
generous giving. See, we're all called to be missionary. Every member of missionary. So we want to live missionally. Our life means, and that literally means living life with purpose. Living life on purpose. With a direction. Can I tell you, most of us, maybe in America, this idea of the American dream was your purpose. You grew up thinking, okay, if I go to school, I work really hard, and I get a good job, and I get a white picket fence house with two and a half kids and a dog, and, you know, this is my dream. This is my mission. Let me tell you, that mission, that dream has not satisfied anybody. But instead, we have a mission that satisfies at the core being of who we are. We have a mission that satisfies us, our desire to be known, our desire to be loved, and a desire to have purpose, is what I call the human condition. And we have a relationship and a mission that satisfies that, because that other thing doesn't satisfy any of those requirements. It doesn't satisfy the eternal nature of our heart's desire for purpose. So we have missional living, but that leads to and equates to generous giving. So when you live on mission, it leads to generous giving. The text that was read was 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. And I love this text. It's probably the, one of the most common texts you've heard when it talks about giving. Usually you just hear that one phrase, God loves a cheerful giver, right? And people typically just preach on that one phrase. Let me give you a little background, and I want to dive into this text together. A little background on 2 Corinthians. Paul was urging the church of Corinth to participate in a collection there was a devastating famine all throughout Judea. And Paul was going to the churches in, in Asia and in Greece, and he was seeking to have all of them kind of participate in a collection to give money to the devastated victims of the famine. He's very clear, though, in the manner in which he wants people to give. He says in verse, chapter 8, verse 8, I'm not commanding you to do this. And in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 11, he says, I want to see with eager willingness. And then in 9, 7, he says, I don't want you to do it with reluctance or compulsion. So let's look at why Paul, he's doing this incredible thing. He's gathering money for people who are suffering from an incredible famine. This is a noble endeavor. But why is Paul emphasizing this idea of, I don't want you to just like, you know, like do it out of compulsion. I don't want you to reluctantly do it. I want to see you eagerly do it. I mean, this is Paul. This is, he's an important guy. He basically helped start or grow or lead all these churches that he went to and spoke with. He could have easily walked in and be like, guys, listen, I don't know if you know this, but I'm Paul. You need to kind of do what I say. He could have walked in and he could have said, you need to give. But he didn't do that. He didn't command. He wanted people to give eagerly, without reluctance, without compulsion. He wanted to see them give cheerfully. Why wasn't this commanded? I mean, in other areas of Christian life, Paul probably had no, he had no issue of giving commands. He, he had no issue of saying, be sexually pure. He had no issue of saying, don't commit adultery. He had no issue of commanding to be faithful. But in this area, he literally doesn't do that. He says, I want you, I, I, I desire for you. I, I wish you would not give out of reluctance or compulsion. Tim Keller says this, unlike some other sins like impurity or adultery, Greed and materialism have no absolute, certain, external behavioral referent. In other words, there's no one external kind of behavior, no level of gift or level of money or level of spending that says, if you're over that, you're greedy. If you're under that, you're generous. Greed and generosity is a matter of your heart. And you can say, well, Lawrence, isn't there a biblical standard? I mean, what about the tithe? 
I mean, isn't it true historically that scripture said that people were supposed to give 10% of their income away to charity, to the church, to others? And I hear you when I say that, but if you look at Luke chapter 12, it says Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for only tithing because they were so well off that they didn't even feel the tithe. There's no one way that you can look at a standard. There's no one reference for, for this behavior. If, with adultery, you know if you're doing it, you, you know you're doing it. But with greed, you don't have that. You don't know where you've gone over the line into greed, into materialism. Therefore, you can't say it's all a matter of your motivation. It's a matter of your heart. This is the setting for this text here in 2 Corinthians 9. God cares about your heart in giving. Why? Because he wants you to be more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 states that God loves a cheerful giver. What? What does that mean? I mean, why? Have you ever wrestled with that concept before? I've heard it said a million times, but have you ever wrestled with it? I did, because it kind of sounds redundant, doesn't it? Like, God loves a cheerful giver. Couldn't I say, well, God loves a sinner. God loves me. God loves everybody. So why, why do you even have to say it, right? What does it mean specifically? Why is Paul saying God loves a fisherman? God loves a pastor? God loves... Why is he specifically saying God loves a cheerful giver? What does Paul mean here? Why even say it? And what I believe Paul is stating here is God has a certain pleasure when we're exhibiting and doing what we were created to do as we're being molded into Christ's likeness. In other words, God loves seeing Christ being magnified and emulated in each of us. That is why he loves a cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver, in the manner that Paul is referring to, is showing the gospel and becoming more and more like Christ. Let me explain a little further. Romans 8.29 says this. I believe it up on the screen. There we go. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So get this. It is the will of the Father that we are conformed into the image of the Son. In other words, we're image bearers of Jesus. That's what we were created to be, but it's his will that we are being more conformed. In other words, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're looking more and more like Jesus. Well, the Son was the ultimate cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Hebrews 12.2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that Jesus was the ultimate cheerful giver who gave everything. He did it with joy. He was a cheerful giver. So when we give as a cheerful giver, when we give out of delight and as a result of the gospel, we show the Son and further become more like Him. God loves this. He loves the Son and lifting up the name of the Son. And you see why Paul writes, God loves a cheerful giver. So I want you guys to remember earlier I said that there were the twofold purpose of the church, how I said the church exists to show the kingdom of God and to advance the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what I believe this passage of scripture is, is calling and is doing. It's first asking the church in Corinth and then asking us today to show the kingdom of God and then to advance it by the way we are cheerful 
givers. One, I want you to hear this. Delightful giving, cheerful giving, shows the picture of this amazing kingdom of God. Remember the twofold purpose. When we give with cheerful hearts, when we give with delight, it shows a picture of the kingdom of God. It first shows how the kingdom is abundantly provided for by God. How he is the source of all the good that comes and the provider of all that is needed to give. Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. When I was um, younger, there was a Korean tradition my parents told me about. They said it's a Korean tradition that you give your first paycheck that you make back to your parents. Now, I told some people that who were Korean, they're like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> so I'm a little concerned, I'm a little confused that my parents might have been kind of lying to me about this. I did read that, that, that this is true. I read that there is a tradition where with your first paycheck, you're supposed to buy your parents, it's gonna sound weird, but like thermal underwear, like long johns. I know, right? It's this idea, it's this premise that your parents have worked so hard for you, and one of the things that they would neglect is that, like, buying themselves nice undergarments. <laughs> so you give them what they were neglecting so that, in their sacrifice for you. And so I remember as a kid, my, um, my parents did everything for me. And I remember, um, I worked, my parents had a little store, and I'd work since I was, like, six at the store. So I'm working the cashier, working the back, working, washing dishes, doing all this stuff at the restaurant. So that, that never counted. I never got a paycheck for that. When I was 14, I got my first job where I ever got a paycheck. I was a busboy at a restaurant. So I walked, worked all day, and I came home from that night, and as a busboy, you get tipped out um, by the waiters and waitresses. So I had all these crumbled up bills, and I went up to my mom, and I just said, and dropped it, all my money in front of her. I said, my first paycheck, mom. And she, my mom, I remember she got kind of teary-eyed and got emotional. And I remember thinking about that, because I remember thinking, I had my friends back in the day, um, my parents, we grew up very poor. I had friends of mine, we would go to the mall or something, and they would always be like, I'll buy this because it's my mom's money. So I don't mind paying for this or whatever. And, and they, but with my money, I'm going to buy a CD. That was what they would always do. And I remember thinking about this and how that never made sense to me. See, growing up, there was no my money and my mom's money. It was all my mom's money. It was all my parents' money. There was no concept of if I got birthday money, it wasn't my money, it was my parents' money. It was, it was all my parents' money because my parents' money provided for me to eat and to sleep and to live. And I knew how struggling we were, so it all, it all fit together. But so when, my, when it was time for me to give my first paycheck to my parents, I didn't grudge a bit of it. I was like, here, you've given me everything. I mean, you've given me, I, I saw my parents, I've shared this story a million times, so I won't share it now, but uh, maybe I will. I'll share it anyway. <laughs> You know, my father, when I was a kid, worked two jobs. In the morning, he'd wake up really early, and he'd go to a steel plant, and he'd weld steel. And he'd work all day, like, he'd go at 5 in the morning. He'd come home around 3 o'clock. He'd hang out with the family. We'd be out of school, and he'd have a quick dinner. Then he'd go to his second job from 6 o'clock to 11 o'clock, where he'd cook in front of a, a wok, hot fire, and cook food. He did this six days a week. And I remember one day asking my dad for money to go on a trip. It was an extra trip, kind of a fun, expensive trip that all the kids were going on. And I remember my dad reaching in and handing me money out of his wallet for me to go. And when he did so, I saw his hands. And um, I, don't know, I guess it was the first time I really noticed it, but his hands had so many blisters and burns and open wounds. 
His hands are cracked from working, from both welding steel to then working in front of a hot fire all day, all night. I saw hands that had to have been in so much pain. And with these hands, he gave me this extra bit of money. Who Now I have no recollection. I have no idea what we did on that trip. But he willingly gave me that money. And so for me, when I gave my money back to my mom, it was, to me, a no-brainer. It was a nothing statement because it was all hers anyway. And so when we're a cheerful giver, what we show ultimately is that we ultimately believe that it's all God's anyway. It's all his. Everything, every gift that we have, it's God's. Every breath, every skill, every talent, every bit of perseverance, every work ethic, everything you have, it's a gift to you from God. It's not yours. Do you believe that? Because that's what we show. We show people that there is a great God who's given us everything when we give as a cheerful giver. We also show second giving like this shows the picture of all people coming together for the common purpose of the kingdom. You guys got to remember that this was a collection for Judea. But Paul was going to Greece, Asia Minor, and other parts of the Roman Empire. In other words, he was going to other people groups, ethnicities, and races, and asking for aid. Do you get that? These are people, the Judean people, the Jews here, who had this incredible famine. These are the ones I was saying, well, I don't know about the Gentiles here in the gospel. In other words, people who aren't Jews here in the gospel. These are the ones then then said, well, if they really want to be a Christian, they should also get circumcised first. These were the ones who were pushing out, ostracizing, taking away. But now that they're suffering under famine, people from other cultures, tribes, ethnicities, the Gentiles, were collecting money and giving it to them. What a beautiful picture is when you give cheerfully, we show a picture of a united kingdom. Third, cheerful giving shows that the kingdom we have purpose and we have dignity. Verse 12 says this, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In this kingdom, we have a purpose that is eternal and is wonderful. We get to meet the needs of the saints. How incredible is that? I had, when I was doing youth ministry a long time ago, I had a young girl in my church named Patty. And Patty was one of those dream-type youth people. You know, she, she wasn't a Christian, didn't grow up in a Christian home, but she became a Christian. And so after she was baptized, she was just full of questions. So she'd walk around with her notebook everywhere. And she just write down questions. After, as she was studying the Bible or she's asking, walking around, she had a question. And she goes, all right, Lawrence, can I take out my notebook? I'm like, all right, Patty, I got 30 minutes. Take out your notebook. And she's asking all these questions. Well, in the Bible it says this. What, why, why does it say that? Or I was thinking about this, and why does God do that? And it had these, all these incredible questions, and I loved it. But one of the questions that she asked was this. One of the more difficult questions that people ask. Why doesn't God fix it? I mean, there are people starving. There are people being sold into slavery. There's mass genocide happening. Why doesn't God fix it? Right? Lawrence, you believe he's powerful enough. You believe he's good enough. Why doesn't he fix it? And I know many of you guys have probably heard that question before. You've probably asked that question before. You may be asking that question right now. And I remember looking at Patty, and I'm like, oh, Patty, this is a difficult question. Let me see, how, how, how do I want to answer this? Well, this girl, sweet... Patty started a ministry where we would go to um, assisted living home 
and we would share some hymns and share a lesson out of the Bible and just have a, um, just spend some time at their home. So Patty was there, and she invited. I was the speaker for that day, and Patty led the music, and so we were there singing. And there's a lady there named Joy. It was her first time, who came, uh, first time coming. And then Joy's face just lit up. She was singing the hymns with, at the top of her voice. She was involved. I, when I was sharing my message, she was just so into it. And she came up to me and she said, I wish I had a Bible I can read. And I said, why can't you read your Bible? And she said, it's just the print's too small. And so I, I don't know how this happened. Just randomly, I grabbed my first Bible off my shelf before I came. And I happened to grab the extra large print Bible. I don't even know why I had one, but I just, I just happened to grab it. And I said, well, Patty, you can have my Bible. And Patty's like, I can read this Bible. She was so excited. She said, I'm going to read it to everybody in my hall, and we're going to have Bible studies. And she was just so excited. And so Joy, uh, Patty's next to me, and Joy's, we're praying for her, and Patty's just crying. She's so happy this is happening. Well, after everybody left, the, the ladies who ran the, the center came up to us and said, I want you to know something. Joy came up to us earlier and uh, was hiding her pills because she said she had no more reason to live. And she said, I have no purpose left. What's what's the point of going on? But now look at her, full of life and wants to share the Bible with everybody else. And so I look at Patty, and Patty's just, I'm I'm crying. I have tears. This is sloppy. It's ugly. And Patty's crying, and we're both just crying. And I look at Patty, and I said, you know, Patty, God could have fixed Joy like that. But for some reason, God loved us enough that he sent you to Patty. I don't know all the answers. And there's many theological answers that I can come up with. But one of the ones, one of my favorite ones is this. Because God loves you so much that he wants you to have such purpose. that He doesn't fix it like that. He says he wants to use you. He wants you to have purpose and significance. He wants you to be a part of the work that he's doing. There's much more to it than that. There's more theological nuances to it. But I also want you to get the element of that. Like God wants to use you. And so in this, when we cheerfully give to meet the needs of those who are suffering, we are showing the rest of the world that in this kingdom, we have purpose. Eternal significance. That we get to be like Patty. And we get to help and serve and meet the needs of others. Giving in delight also moves to advance the kingdom of God. Looking back at chapter 9 here, the second part of the passage, it says this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Now what Paul is saying here is, is this, this whole kind of money as your, your gifts as a seed. You know, it's a great metaphor. The more seed you put in the field, the more harvest you'll get, right? Kind of makes sense. Now, what some people say, and they look at this, and they question, well, does that mean that the more money I give away, the more money I'll get back, right? Some people will say that. There are pastors out there who will say that, which I, I, it's such a shame. There are pastors out there who will say up to you, get in front of you and say, hey, if you give $1,000 to the church, you'll get a million dollars back. If that was true, by the way, we'd have a lot more millionaires in the world, right? So what then is this harvest? What principle is Paul trying to teach here? It's not the prosperity doctrine. It's something totally different. In verse 8 it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, having all you need. He doesn't say he'll give you everything you want. 
He says he'll meet your needs, right? So the harvest is not then this idea of you give away more money, the money comes back to you. Then what is the harvest? It's found in verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase harvest of your righteousness. Do you hear that? So what's the harvest? It's not more money back. It's the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? Well, Paul is quoting Psalm 112 here. And if you look at Psalm, what you see is a man who fears the Lord. And then what this man is doing is he's putting money into the poor. He's lifting up the poor. He's, he's lifting up the hungry so they don't die. And over and over throughout Psalm 112, it's talking about him doing justice, compassion, and freely given, giving. And finally, it says this. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, let's talk about the way in which he uses his money, in which he uses his power. He's, he's reweaving creation. Instead of spending it on himself, his, he's reweaving creation. He's spending it on what is broken, the poor and the hungry and the dying. And his righteousness endures forever. What does that mean? 2 Peter 3.13 says this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth filled with righteousness, where righteousness dwells. In other words, if you're reading Psalm 112, you see what he's doing with righteousness. And 2 Peter 3.13, the promises of a future world, is a world full of righteousness. That doesn't mean a bunch of people going to church. It means a world where what is broken is made right. It means a world would happen with sin, the unraveling of creation, the hunger, the genocide, the bigotry, the racism, the hatred. What happened when creation was broken through sin, that when it wove apart? What he's saying, there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And in that, we're going to reweave creation where God is reweaving it to make what is wrong right. It means the very kingdom of God. What Paul is saying and what you and I must do is that when we give, when we give as cheerful givers, we're making right what went wrong with creation and we're reweaving it. We're making it back by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're now making the kingdom of God come forth. Let me explain. When Jesus came to the earth, he performed amazing miracles. But it wasn't just a naked display of power. I mean, if, if, if my goal and my miracles was to show, because everybody says, why did Jesus perform miracles? And people's typical answer is to show that he is God, to show how powerful he is, right? Well, can I tell you this? If my only goal was to show how powerful I was, to show my power, I wouldn't be necessarily healing the sick and feeding the hungry. I might have, like, the sun spell out my name in the sky. You know, I might fly through the air really fast, lift up large mountains, and decorate with, with mountains, decorate my name or a statue of myself. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? If it was up to me, I just wanted to show my power, I'd be doing crazy things. But that's not what Jesus did. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He brought back to life what was dead. This is to show us his character, but it's also to show us what his purpose was. His purpose is to reweave creation. His purpose is to say, no, no, what was broken in the fall, I fix in my life and in my death and in my resurrection. Do you see that? 
It's to say what was broken in the fall, this exit of paradise, I'm redeeming and I'm bringing paradise back. And I'm doing it through my people. His miracles point back to a garden of Eden, to the way the, the world, the way God intended. No one hungry, no one blind, no one oppressed, no one dead. Also, his miracles point forward. His miracles are a sign of the coming kingdom, our future hope, where there will be no one poor, no one hungry, no one oppressed, and no more tears. Guys, do you see, when we use our money, when we use our power, when we use it in generous giving, we're doing what Jesus did. We're saying we don't want the hungry and the oppressed. We're pointing and helping bring forth a different future reality. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is what's coming? And are you utterly sure that this future is coming for you? Then when you do so, when you are so, when you use your money to cheerfully give and to reweave creation, what you're doing is you're putting yourself into the story and mission of Jesus. When you use your money in this way, you're putting yourself to advance the kingdom on earth. You're helping create the new heavens and the new earth. How can you be giving be a delight? How can you be a cheerful giver? How can you give and live missionally when you know it's part of a greater purpose and mission? And the ultimate cheerful giver called us to do so. My father, um, I shared with you guys the, how he worked the, his shift, but he would always come home from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, have dinner with us. And I'd ask him, because it's like a 20-minute drive for him, you know, one way back. So I'd, I'd ask him one day, I'd say, God, Dad, why, did you, why do you always come home? You know, why do you always come home? And his answer was, honestly, if he didn't see his family, he didn't know how much more he could do. Right? If he wasn't able to come home and have dinner with his family, with his, my sister and I, his, my mom, and if he didn't have dinner with us, then he couldn't just stay at work all day and give everything. But when he saw us, he was like, yeah, I can go back to my next job. How do we give cheerfully? Well, I think it's impossible without Jesus. But when you see him, the ultimate cheerful giver who gave everything, and when you believe then that if you receive this gift, the gift of the gospel, the gift of new life in him, where you don't have to question anymore, you have right standing before God because Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for your relationship, for your sin, so that you can have relationship with God. Then you know that the world and all that's in it is his. And that he's called you to incredible purpose. We say here at Waypoint Church now, missional living generous giving. We believe because we believe we're working in this manner serves the incredible purpose of bringing forth the kingdom where there are no more tears, no more hatred, no more racism, no more bigotry, no more death. Creation, it was meant to be. Amen? Man, everybody should have gotten in your bulletin a card. This is our financial pledge campaign card. And what this is for us at Waypoint, this is a way the leadership in the church, the elders, have a way of determining what is a smart but God-glorifying budget. And so what we do is we, we ask the church to fill out what is your pledge campaign or your pledge for the coming year, calendar year. We do this every year, and this helps determine the budget. We are passionate about giving the missions. We are passionate about the call that God's placed upon us. We are passionate, as you've heard 
hopefully all throughout the service. We're passionate about lifting the name of Jesus and seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what you can do for the next two weeks, or even today if you're ready, is when the offering plates go by or baskets, you're able to, you can fill that out as a family, prayerfully consider what God's called you to do, and place that in so that we can take that information, not share with anybody else, but just to determine um, what our budget for the next year is going to be as a church. Now this is, you're not going to be getting phone calls from me or Josh at the end of the year being like, hey, what happened here? <laughs> you're a little short. Because we're like Paul, we don't want to make you out of any kind of compulsion. We just want to give you the opportunity to walk in discipleship and to cheerfully give to look like Jesus. Because we see all that it does when we do. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you first and foremost that our status before you is one of beloved child. Now, the way my father was able to endure, God, for the joy set before you, Jesus, you endured the cross. God, you saw us and completed your joy. So we thank you for your passionate love. We thank you for our standing before the Father because of you, Jesus, for the gospel. And God, we thank you that we know that the world and all that's in it is yours. So everything that we have is nothing but a gift. So we ask, Lord, to show us how to be a generous giver. Show us how to be a cheerful giver. Show us how this idea, God, of being a cheerful giver advances your kingdom, shows your kingdom, calls us to purpose. And may we live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.